Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. U.S. tax reform is leaving Canadian competitiveness in the dust. The University of Calgary School of Public Policy assembled a world-class group of experts to discuss this. I spoke with Professor Jack Mintz, President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy, about that. The EU agrees to a Brexit deal with the U.K. They say it's a one-time-only offer. Will British Prime Minister Theresa May be able to sell this to a fractious parliament? Professor Alan Sked, Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics, doesn't necessarily think so. We're all on the gravy train now, and we're borrowing to do it. Brian Peckford is the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, and he addressed the fiscal update from Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Morneau. Professor Jack Mintz joins me on the Roy Green Show, President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy, one of Canada's most respected economists. Professor Mintz, thank you very much for the time. Uh, You had a forum, you participated in a forum at the University of Calgary uh, School of Public Policy the day after the fiscal update. Um, What came out of that? Is our competitiveness improved at all? And did I I just blow it in what I said earlier just before we signed on? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think there's been... uh let's say, some movement by the federal government to at least recognize that there is a competitiveness problem of some extent, but I don't think they really uh, are willing to uh, really fully recognize it because if they... Um, let me put it this way. You know, they, they made some changes tinkering to, with uh, depreciation schedules, with accelerated depreciation. That will help a little bit. It's all going to phase out in five years' uh, time, like uh, the U.S. Uh, expensing formula. Uh, but it just still leaves a huge amount still uh, st- still on the table. Uh, you know, Canada has higher energy taxes, including carbon taxes, in the United States. Uh, we have uh, higher personal taxes, uh, which tax on our ability to attract skilled labor. It make, also encourages our entrepreneurs to go south rather than stay here. Uh, we have uh, natural disadvantages of being a small market and, and uh and uh, and you know in, in a cold climate, uh, and the w- one thing that we did have was a very significant uh, business tax advantage in terms of the corporate tax, uh, but that's now gone. And even with the moves in the budget, it really puts us maybe uh, just slightly better off in the U.S. But not, uh, but we still have a corporate income tax rate that's still slightly higher than the Americans on average. Uh, but much higher than some states. Like if you're living in Alberta, you're looking at Texas. Texas is at 21, Alberta is at 27%. So that's a six-point difference in corporate income tax rates. So uh, we haven't really addressed it. And then we have all those regulatory issues that you mentioned. So uh, we have a much bigger agenda uh, than just tinkering around the depreciation rates. Yeah, well, the prime minister did say, did he not, that the regulatory issues were not the reason, and they, they aren't the sole reason, but you seem to really downplay the issue of regulatory reasons being a factor in the price of, of oil or the, the competitive nature of, of getting our oil to market. Well, I, I would have thought, <laughs> I would have thought that a, um, you know, that the uh, regula- you know, that regulations, uh, including building pipelines, is, uh, is, is certainly hampering us. And uh, and it's really hurting Alberta big time. But as you pointed out in your 
original comments. This is not just an Alberta problem. This is for the whole country as a whole. And just to kind of go back on some statistics, the Mowat Center at the University of Toronto put out a, a pretty good report kind of outlining the various provinces that contribute, contributed to federation where there are people paying more taxes relative to the expenditures made by the federal government in the province. And Alberta, you know, over 10 years' time from uh, 19, uh, sorry, from 2000, and, you know, roughly 2007 to 2017, has contributed $220 billion to the rest of the country. That's a huge amount of money. In fact, it is um, uh, almost three times more than Ontario. And Ontario, of course, has three and a half times the population of Alberta. And so Alberta is the biggest net contributor to the rest of the country. And so it really is the golden goose that lays the egg. And if, uh, if Albertans pay less tax and a lot less tax in the future, uh, then all of a sudden the rest of the country is going to be finding that they're not going to benefit from this transfer anymore. No, they have to understand and, that. And yeah, that's sorry. roughly, let's say, $20 billion a year. So that's a lot of money. That's uh, a lot of money. So the country is benefiting from. You know, I keep saying this. We spoke with uh, Frank McKenna, the deputy chair of TD Bank, about the seven-year, or the study of the seven-year pain, the pain that we uh, that we live with in this country, costs us 117 billion dollars. 117 billion over seven years. That's just the price differential um, at, at which we sell our oil to the United States. The uh, the deficit that they get, or the you know the the advantage they have of being our only customer. That cost us $117 billion. Uh, when I hear Mr. Trudeau say regulatory realities aren't the major hurdle for the energy industry, I, I, I think about what he's done. He stopped oil tanker traffic in northern British Columbia. He, he killed the Northern Gateway Pipeline. His upstream emissions requirements ground energy east to a halt, which would have stopped foreign oil from being transported by tanker on the St. Lawrence River, which doesn't seem to bother him that much, 800,000 barrels a day, but there's no emission studies there. It just seems to me, uh, Professor Mintz, there is an agenda at play here. It's not about uh, it's not about it's not about what's doing right for for Canadians, and particularly Western Canadians in this uh, equation. Yeah, there's an agenda that they that they're living up to or, or trying to live up to. Well, I mean, many Albertans are starting to feel that, and in fact, uh, well, how could you not? Regulatory, another regulatory regime uh, that is uh, hitting. Uh, the industry and they're greatly concerned about it is Bill C-69, which is now sitting at the Senate. This is a whole new regulatory approach. The government is trying to cut back the timelines involved, but anyone who is knowledgeable about regulation, where they're now throwing in all sorts of, um, you know, all the political issues into, you know, what the National Energy Board gets to do in part of the regulator, regulator system, which includes things like uh, you know, uh, carbon policy and, you know, First Nation issues and things like that, uh, you know, it is, it is uh, the view of the industry is that this is going to take much longer now. We're already at a very long time just to try to get anything done. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, most of the, you know, the pipeline industry has already made clear that they don't think any pipeline uh, across this country will be able to get built under this new regulatory regime. So I think if the Prime Minister came to Calgary, you would think he would have had something this week to address, which is a huge problem. And, and I think one of the best things he could have done was say he was going to pull Bill C-69 off the table and uh, and rework it uh, and try to see if there's a better approach. And there is. I mean, Australia does a far better job than we do as a country in getting reg- regulatory approval for any project, whether it's electrical transmission lines, 
or pipelines or trains, uh, highways or whatever, and it's because they set up corridors in advance. Uh, they deal with all the kind of big, hot political issues right away. Once the corridor is approved, then, uh, and then uh, anything can go into that corridor, uh, subject to, you know, review, a technical review of the specific environmental and, uh, and economic issues associated with it. So, so uh, you know, you could talk to, like, ATCO and some of the other companies that do investments in Australia versus Canada. And they'll tell you in Australia, it just takes less than a year to get approval, uh, while in, uh, in Canada it will take years to get approval. And, in fact, that's what the World Bank study has shown. Just for approval of a commercial warehouse, that we take a very long time to get permitting done. And we also take a very long time to get goods to Tidewater in this country. And so we do have a serious regulatory issue, and it does need to be dealt with. Yeah, and when you look at the World Bank study, not only early 22nd internationally, Canada, as far as doing uh, the ease of doing business in the country is concerned, we're also... 121st in the world when it comes to providing electricity as needed for business. Let me go back to what I should have started with, and I apologize for kind of coming at this whole thing through the side door, but there's so many issues at play when it comes to this government and when it comes to the energy sector and Canada being competitive and Canadians being as prosperous as we should be, that is overwhelming at times. But the, 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 the issue that you were exploring was... U.S. tax reform is leaving Canadian competitiveness in the dust. Could you just talk to that issue, please? Okay. Um, so the U.S. tax reform, uh, it, it was a pretty significant change to the U.S. system, and it's now uh, applies as of January 1st, 2018. So it's reality. It's not something that people are, are speculating about. Um, and uh, there are really, I would say, kind of like three or four important elements to that. Um, one is that uh, the reform uh, really did uh, create a much more competitive environment, tax competitive environment for investment in the United States, um, lowering the U.S. corporate rate uh, at the federal level uh, from 35 to 21 percent, and uh, and also bringing in. Uh, uh, well, actually, what they did is they they didn't really change policy that much. In, in they've always had what's called bonus depreciation for investments in machinery. And it was supposed to be 40% in 2018, and now it's going to be 100%. So uh, that number has been going up and down over the years. <laughs> uh, in in in, uh, in in the in the U.S., as Congress keeps changing it, depending on what they want to do. So, for example, in 2010, it was 100%, and then they went back to 50%. There was even a period that was canceled, uh, and in fact, it was it was supposed to be phased out by 2020. Um, but the main point is that these changes do uh, attract more uh, capital investment by large corporations in, in the U.S. So, um, and they also made uh, a major change to the taxation of uh, uh, smaller and medium-sized businesses, giving them a special deduction from the uh, tax rates. And that's because many of these uh, small businesses weren't really being corporations taxed at the corporate rate, but they were actually uh, what were called uh, S-corporations. Uh, these were companies, that, uh, smaller firms, that um, didn't pay corporate income tax at all, but all the income was attributed to the owner and, and subject to personal taxes. And the U.S., of course, lowered personal tax rates, uh, you know, but they also uh, provided a special uh, deduction for uh, profits earned by, by these corporations. And so 
uh, now the small business in, in, in the United States are taxed about uh, 10 points lower than in Canada when you take into account personal and corporate income tax. That's big. That is huge. It's a, it's a huge difference. And, and so that's another change that, 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 that's important in drawing more investment to the United States. And then a, a second uh, sort of change is where various, um, uh, what I would call base broadening changes, limitations on interest deduction, loss deduction, uh, a new uh, base erosion anti-avoidance tax paid by foreign corporations in the United States. And, uh, and then on top of it, uh, U.S. multinationals no longer would pay taxes on their dividends that they brought home. Uh, they'd be exempt from U.S. tax. It would just bear any foreign tax abroad. And what this has done is it, it's, it's changed completely tax planning vis-a-vis the U.S. Mm-hmm. Prior to 2018, uh, a corporation, including a cane corporation, if they were operating in the United States, they, they want to invest there because it is 20% of the world market, uh, but uh, they would not want to leave their profits there because it was so highly taxed. And so they would load up interest expense and U.S. subsidiaries, and uh, et cetera. And uh, now, as of 2018, it's totally changed because of all these base protection-type provisions the Americans brought in. Uh, companies now in the U.S. are going to put profits in the United States, not take profits out of the United States. And that's going to have a base erosion effect on Canada because what will happen is that, for example, U.S. corporations, they'll they could empty some of the profits out of their Canadian subsidiaries, pay out dividends to the American uh, company. The American company could then use that to reduce debt or, or, or whatever and put in more investment in the United States and you know whatever they plan to do. Right. And then they would leverage up their Canadian subsidiaries with more debt, and the Kane government would all of a sudden be out of revenue. Uh, and so you're going to get this base erosion effect. Okay, so we have and, that. We, we have that. And then we add to that. The problems that we create for ourselves um, exactly. again it takes us back. It takes this us back is, to this is leaving aside anything that Canada's done. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so now we're finding all of a sudden we have a higher corporate income tax rate than the United States. The U.S. also has a special concessionary rate for, you know, in- income from intellectual property and sales force, right. like marketing and things like that. And so when you put it all together, all of a sudden the U.S. is much more competitive in another respect okay. compared to Canada. On just on the corporate tax side, All right. and so the remedy that we needed to do in Canada was not tinker around with depreciation rate rates. I mean, we could do it; I mean, it would have some impact. Mm-hmm. But the kind of changes that have now happened in the U.S., we need a, a much bigger reform. Now, I don't blame the federal government if they decided they didn't want to announce a whole tax reform just before an election. That's very no, I, I understand that. We only have a few seconds, but, but you know, the, we, we have problems now. I understand there's an election on the 21st of yep. October 2019, but we have a problem now. And it's the government's responsibility to address the problem when the problem exists, not address it when it's too, at, at an ad, advantageous time for them. I understand why they're doing it. It's just wrong, at least from my perspective. Professor Menz, I hope well, you'll come back. I'm, I'm sorry, we're just out of time, yeah. but I thank you so much for joining okay. us today. Okay. All right. thank, thank you. you. Professor Jack Menz from uh, the University of Calgary. <laughs> Professor Alan Sked is back with us, Professor Emeritus of International History at the London mm-hmm. School of Economics, founder of UKIP. Now, one of his books is The Legacy of Totalitarianism, Political Philosophy in Europe and America. 
Professor Sked, what's going on now? Is this is this the deal that we talked you and I talked about two weeks ago? Is it a better deal? Is it a different deal? And what are the chances no, of this deal? No, it's a deal that we expected her to sign. It's a complete disaster, and uh, I don't think it's got any chance whatsoever of being approved by the House of Commons. And what does that mean then? Well, it's not clear. I hope in the end we just leave without a deal. Um, there are people who think that they can prevent no deal, but if the House of Commons votes down this deal, I, I can't really see there being... Well, the European Union says it won't negotiate, negotiate any alternative deal, and um, I can't see the House of Commons voting for a second referendum, so um, the clock ticks and on, legally speaking, on the 11 o'clock at night on the 29th of March next year, we officially ceased to be a member of the European Union. Regardless? Regardless, yes. Now, I also heard that the small political party from Northern Ireland that Prime Minister May counts on to provide her with the majority votes she requires, that party has said they're not interested in this deal. No, they're absolutely furious with May, whom they quite rightly believe has double-crossed them. And uh, they, 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 they will vote down this deal. In fact, I think if she were to get it through, they would probably bring down the government. She's dependent on their 10 MPs in the Commons for her majority. And I think if she was still Prime Minister, they would refuse to uh, give it to her. Um, <clears throat> no, it's quite clear they're not going to vote for it, and neither is the Labour opposition, according to Corbyn, uh, nor will the Lib Dems, nor will the Scottish Nationalists, nor will the Welsh Nationalists, nor will the one Green member... Um, so, uh, given that there are about 91 of our own party's MPs who have already said that they can't support the deal, I, I can't really see where she's going to get support. Would this then mean, as has been predicted by a number of people, highly profile positions, that there would be economic and also social chaos in the UK? No, no this is all part of the great scare that started during the referendum campaign. We were told that if we voted to leave, the, the, the economy would collapse. We'd lose about 8% of GDP. There'd be 100,000 unemployed. House prices would crash. Nothing like that happened. The economy is doing well. It's got record employment. In the last quarter, it grew by 0.6%. The European Union grew by 0.2%. Germany actually went down to minus 0.2%. Italy had no growth at all. Um, so we're, we're doing fine economically. Um, our unemployment rate's 4%. In Macron's France, it's 9.7%. Uh, in the European Union as a whole, it's still about 10%. So the European Union isn't doing too well. It's facing uh, all sorts of economic problems. Uh, it doesn't know whether to put an end to economic, subject to quantitative easing, which is the only thing keeping it afloat, really. Its, it's, its interest rates are already down to minus 0.4%. There's another economic crisis starting in Greece. Italy's challenging the whole EU fiscal framework, and that might start a systemic crisis in the Eurozone. Uh, Italian banks might go. The German banks aren't looking very well. Deutsche Bank's uh, shares at the lowest rates uh, in recorded memory. So... <clears throat> the EU is teetering on an economic crisis, which those of us who want to keep us in it don't seem to be aware of. So we're getting out at the right time. Yeah, and uh, as, as has been said, 
if there were uh, no Alan Scad, there would have been no UKIP, no UKIP, no referendum, no referendum, no Brexit. Uh, yes, well, mm. <laughs> yeah, somebody once called me the godfather of Brexit. That's probably good enough. <laughs> What's the drop-dead date? The drop dead date. Yeah. What do you mean? For voting, when when, when do they? I mean, what's the date when? Oh well, it look, I think a lot of people are saying it was going to be the twelfth um, of December. And as far as I know, that still seems to be the date. It'll, it'll be around about then if it's not the twelfth. And um, you know, whether she resigns or not after that, I don't know. If she had any okay. honour, she would resign if she loses. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, if she loses, I think um, we'll get the Tory MPs uh, writing in and forcing a, a leadership contest. Okay. Well, if the vote is on the uh, 12th of December, then it's going to be the most interesting 12 days of Christmas for the Theresa May will ever have experienced. Uh, I hope yeah. so, and <laughs> I hope she ends up as toast. Okay. Professor Sked, good talking to you. Thank you for taking the call. Thank you. Professor Alan Sked, London School of Economics, Professor Emeritus. Uh, the Liberal Party, I, I really like a tweet from uh, Mercedes Stevenson from Global News. Uh, she writes, I just want, to, just want to get this here. Liberal Party writes, blogs, tweets, not blogs, tweets. Public funding and tax support for free and independent news media is the norm, not the exception, in Western democracies around the world. Our new plan will help journalists of any stripe thrive in this country. So at Mercedes Global, Mercedes Stevenson replies, a political party stating journalists have stripes, which is typically a term used for partisans, is problematic. This undermines credibility of media, which is already an issue in the era of fake news. It doesn't help those working to provide fact-based unbiased coverage. Hashtag Canadian Poly. Bang on. Good one. Like it. Now, uh, let me talk to my my friend and former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford, who uh, blogs at peckford42.wordpress.com. Peckford42.wordpress.com. Premier, before we talk about your blogs, your blog pieces, and they're classic, and they're on the mark, and they need to be talked about, before we do that, how do you feel, somebody who spent years on the inside of the political track? You were there as part of the negotiation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You went through all of that give and take and take and give and we'll do this if you do that and if you do this, we won't do that. When you see what's going on in the political world today, when you watch, for example, our federal government, do you bang your head against the wall every day? Is that just a therapeutic thing that you engage in? <clears throat> that's why I started the blog. I had to have some outlet, some catharsis to what I was seeing, that things were not really changing all that much. And uh, when you mention the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it really makes me um, uh, my blood boil, and I, I really get goosebumps in the wrong way. Because uh, when we put in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, the, uh, the freedom of the press, I understood at the time, and I think most people did, that the definition of freedom of the press would be a press that was free and viable on its own without government support, because how can it be a free press or freedom of the press, the words we use in the Charter, 
if it's getting support from governments that it must report on. And so, yeah, you're right. It, um, it makes things rather difficult. And then when they frame questions, I think this is the biggest problem for most ordinary Canadians because we're so dependent now upon electronic media and so on for our news and for our so-called information is that what's happened over the last decade or two is the framing of the news. For example, in the 159 pages of the fiscal update that you mentioned earlier, uh, there's only one page and one line on one page of that 159 pages that even talks about how large the debt is. Because what they've done is they've changed it from giving you the total numbers to saying what percent it is of the GDP. Of course, the GDP is a, is a moving number, so therefore you'll never get a clear picture of where you are. The clear picture is, of course, is the debt going up or is the debt going down or is the debt staying the way it is? And unfortunately, the message coming out of the fiscal update is everything is fine, we're just going to invest more and everybody's going to be happy with no mention that the debt is going to go up during that period in that fiscal update by about 110, 111, 114 billion dollars. Plus so, you have to pay interest on that and money. And then that's not that no no question about the interest at all. I mean that 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 is not even in, in the thing. So uh, we've gotten away from the idea that uh, how much did I take in and how much did I put out? In other words, Am I breaking even? Am I going in debt? Or am I having a surplus? That's never talked about anymore. Everything is framed in terms that give a, a, a wrong picture, a, a partial picture of where we are. You, uh, I, I want to start with the, actually I was going to keep this uh, piece for the second right. part of our half hour, but I have to start with it because it relates directly to what you've been talking about. This is your you, you, you title this We Canada, I've crossed the Rubicon, and then you uh, go Latin on me, and I, I never did well in school in, in, in Latin, so so you're on your own, Premier. <laughs> the die is cast, fire away. <laughs> yeah, the die is cast is what it means. I did Latin up to grade 11, by the way. Oh, good for you. But I forget all about that now, and I'm more like that's in the same boat as you, but I was going to a school in Marystown, uh, Newfoundland, southern Newfoundland, from 1951 to 1956, and it was a convent school, and uh, they still taught uh, Latin as well as French, and so I did get a few uh, grades of Latin, believe it or not. So is it alia iacta est? That's as good as I can do. As good as we can get it, right? <laughs> okay, so the die is cast. Please speak to us about that. The because die is cast in more ways than one. In more than ways than one. No, very yeah. much Latin. <laughs> It's 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 dice in the plural, or or whatever they, the die you know anyway. Yeah, exactly. I know what I'm talking about. I can't just can't say it. So uh, you write, we Canadians across the Rubicon, the die is cast. Part one, presto, just like that, and our liberty has been compromised. Can you imagine a more contradictory statement than our finance minister? Uh, than that of our finance minister this past week, to protect the vital role that independent news media play in our democracy and in our communities, we will be introducing measures to help support journalists in Canada. This is what the man said, and with a straight face, the federal government has just allocated $569 million to support media in this country. How, the, how can news media be independent uh, 
if they are financially supported by the government. It defies any reasonable definition of a free press. Canadians are asleep. They need to wake up. Premier. Well, I mean, the, uh, to me, uh, as I say in the, in the next part of the, of the blog, is um, I don't know of any single thing that's been done in the last few decades which more undermines democracy than that action of contributing to what was supposed to be an independent press, than that statement by the Minister of Finance. Suddenly now, with the government of Canada and governments of, of Canada are going to be involved in almost every single aspect of our living, of our existence. We always thought up to now that at least the press, uh, and many in the press, including your program, um, we could rely by listening and watching and so on and reading on the press to give us some objective truth. That's now being undermined because I don't know how you can um, legitimately say that we have an independent press if, in fact, the government is financing it. Mm-hmm. No, there's, it's, it's, it's impossible. Yeah, it's it, impossible. It really is. And, and, and like I say, when we, when we put that in the Constitution, the Charter of and Freedom of Press, I understood it to mean, and I'm sure most people who were there at the time understood it to mean, a press that was free from subsidy or influence by the government so that the press could therefore legitimately report upon it and I could listen to that report and have some confidence that it was telling me the truth. And uh, if you have no freedom of the press, then freedom of speech becomes, or freedom of expression becomes just an expression. Exactly, exactly. And it's 595. I made a mistake in my blog. I said 569 million. It's actually 595 million. In other words, five million less than 600 million. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't uh, alert to that mistake because I thought some of that money may go to me. <laughs> I, well, I went into the <laughs> fiscal update itself and went through it with fine tooth comb this morning mm-hmm. before coming on your program so that I could be sure of my numbers. Anyway, it's $595 million over yeah. the next five to six years yeah. Yeah. going uh, to uh, the various... We don't know where it's going for sure, but we know it's going to journalism in Canada, all the private sector uh, journalistic organizations in Canada, or some of them, because we don't know who's going to get it yet. We don't know how they're going to set up a committee who's going to dispense the funds. We don't know how the committee is going to be set up, who's going to set it up. Obviously, the government is going to have to agree to it. And then the, the funds are going to start to flow uh, over the next five or six years um, on an accelerated rate until they reach their $595 million. So it's, it's an amazing piece of work. It really is. But it will not happen if they're not reelected next year. One hopes. Well, uh, because it's a commitment for those uh, the, the times... Um, and it's now been factored in, um, you know, uh, I would hope that whoever becomes, if, if the Liberals are not the government after the next election, that they will cancel that on their first day uh, and, and, and make it so. But uh, it's a commitment there now, and the, the committee will be set up, and there will be a great pressure on whoever, if there is a new government, a different government, uh, to, to say when governments make commitments, they've got to keep them, and you're not now committed, you know, 
keeping the commitment, even though it's a different party government. So well, there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot talked about for sure. Premier, hold on, hold on. We're going to take a quick break. Brian Peckford, my guest, former Premier of Newfoundland and uh, and uh, Labrador, almost had. I almost I almost committed some geographical chicanery here. I was going to say Newfoundland and Saskatchewan. <laughs> Uh, Well, you know what? It's really funny you should say that because, to be quite honest with you now, in my dealings over the years when I was in government and since, we have a great affinity with a lot of people in Saskatchewan. I don't know if it's because of the rural nature, uh, historically, of both both, uh, provinces, and we did have our, and have had our difficulties. Uh, but uh, the, the people, for example, that I know here on Vancouver Island, a lot of our friends are from Saskatchewan. Yeah, we have a, We also on this program have a great relationship with the Premier and yep. had a great relationship with the past, uh, with the previous Premier. Let me also yeah. give out your uh, your blog uh, address. It's peckford42.wordpress.com, peckford42.wordpress.com. Check out Premier Peckford's blogs. They are excellent. So let's get at this one. We're all on the gravy train now. And more borrowing to do it. Premier, walk us through this. Well, what's really happening here now is as a result of this fiscal update and with its inclusion of the, of the money going to the, through journalism, private journalism, over the next five or six years. By the way, it starts off next year at $45 million for the press, goes to $105 million the next year goes to 130 million the next year goes to 150 million the next year and 165 million in the in the last year so what we have here now is a a, a nation which has over the last number of years especially since Mr Trudeau got in the present government initiated a whole bunch of programs which nobody knew how much they were going to cost like for example canceling the northern pipeline uh, that was going to go to the coast and relieve Alberta of getting some of the oil to other countries rather than the United States. Uh, then, of course, uh, the Energy East got cancelled because the government decided that in order to determine uh, just uh, whether we should go along with this pipeline, we're going to include stuff that you don't own. We're going to include where your oil goes and who processes that oil, and that's factored backwards as to whether we think this is a good deal or not. Well, the oil (laughs) pipeline company said, if you're going to start to use numbers uh, which inflate our our situation uh, just uh, just like that on a whim, then uh, we cannot finance this pipeline to New Brunswick or to Quebec and on to New Brunswick to give the people of eastern Canada a chance to get oil from Canada, not just from Saudi Arabia or from Nigeria. So these, and then the carbon tax. So all of these things came in over the last number of years. On top of that comes a new American administration, and they decide right away, like they had promised, to make business uh, more competitive in the United States and immediately reduce their tax on businesses substantially down to 21% from 35%, and also to eliminate a whole bunch of regulations over time. For every new one that was created, two had to be reduced. So suddenly we have two things happening. The government of our country making it more difficult to do business, especially with those raw resources, which you know are a substantial part of our exports, and at the same time being hit again by our neighbor, where we do 76% of our exports, uh, who are making things 
uh, more uh, regulatory free, making thing, uh, making business uh, more attractive. Okay. And and so we have two hits coming at us: one from somebody else, our big neighbor, and one from ourselves. One we did. One we did. One we did to ourselves. And, and as you also point out, we only have a few seconds left. You also point out the World Bank, in its ease of doing business report, and I tweeted this. We scored. I checked it out. We scored twenty second in the world ease of being doing business. Eighth, uh, and the Americans are number eight, and as far as bringing electricity into this country is concerned or for business, we're on number 121 globally. Premier Packford, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you very much for having me, and, and, and somebody should go in and, and just check those World Bank numbers. Why, well, everything that we have said yeah. on this program yeah. can be checked out. Okay, thanks for the time. Uh, Brian Packford, packford42.wordpress.com, and it's the World Bank. I checked out the numbers. They do check out. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.